0: Good morning and welcome to the online ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. My name is Tommy Allen and I will be leading us this morning and also teaching. This morning we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 22, the present in our series on the Jesus Storybook Bible in which we're following the template laid out in the Jesus Storybook Bible uh, and in some sense covering sort of a, a 30,000 foot view of the whole Bible. So. I'm excited to jump back in today. I've been gone for a couple of weeks. Samuel did a great job while I was gone. So, this morning I thought I would begin with a confession of sin. Um, that typically in this online format, we're sort of adding elements of worship. And sooner than later, we'll actually hope to be meeting together in some context. And so you can look forward to that. But right now, if you want to follow along, you should be able to find the confession of sin in the description section so let us confess our sins together holy father all things in heaven earth around within and without condemn us the sun which sees our misdeeds the darkness which hides them the accuser who justly charges us your righteous law our sin soiled consciences all write dark things against us yet still we live and fly repenting into your outstretched arms. You will not cast us off, for Jesus brings us near. You will not condemn us, for he died in our stead. You will not mark our mountains of sin, for he leveled all. O God, we bid farewell to our sin by clinging to his cross, hiding in his wounds, and sheltering in his side. Amen. If we were meeting together right now, I would give you the opportunity to take a few moments to confess your sins, and then afterward, I would give you this assurance of pardon. And so the assurance of pardon I say to you right now is just for you to know this, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. If you have confessed your sins unto Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And so I say to you, know that your sins are forgiven. And be at peace. Amen, and amen. So now we jump back in to our series, or at least I jump back in to our series at Genesis chapter twenty-two, the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible calls it the present, and it is maybe the most one of the most controversial texts in the whole Bible, um, because Abraham is called to give up that which is most precious to him. Now, I know something about this. A few weeks ago, um, while I was on vacation, one of the things Judy and I did was we cleaned out my shop. You know, we, we moved to the, our current house about eight or nine years ago, and the shop I had before was, the house was super old, but the shop was like about the equivalent of a three-car garage. It was enormous. And so when we moved to this house, the shop is like a three-quarters of a car garage and so everything got shoved in there and then I started working on my doctorate and just I didn't get around to anything and so Judy and I cleaned out the whole shop and we determined I had this massive gorgeous table saw and we thought you know this thing is just too big to fit in this garage I'm not gonna be able to work and so I made the hard decision to sell the table saw and we put it on offer up and a a guy came to pick it up in this enormous pickup truck and as he was looking it over I just started (laughs) to cry and he looked up and said are you okay and i said just i'm fine it's i built all my girls hope chest on this table saw it's it's just part of my family take it take it and he took it and as soon as he drove away i immediately started to regret giving away my big gorgeous table saw and i remember looking at judy and saying i think god wants me to have a table saw and that was it right and so now think about the today's story where Abraham, after years, after decades of waiting for Isaac, the promised son, um, he's called to to sacrifice him, to give it up. Can you imagine having to actually um, give one of your children away, or give your one of your children sacrifice one of your children because God asks you to? Um, that'd be a big thing, I would imagine, and it is a big thing, and we're going to look at how big it is actually today. So we're going to look at three things as we consider the text this morning. We're going to look at a test of faith. We're going to look at evidence of faith. You're going to see Abraham's evidence of faith. And you're going to see the reward of faith, that how Abraham is rewarded at the end of this text. So let let me begin by, we talked about the first point, a test of faith. I just want to read the first three words, because the first three words really set up this whole text. And the first three words of chapter 22 say, after these things okay after these things god tested abraham now what things are is the author is moses referring to here and i think it's the whole story of abraham going all the way back to genesis 12 one of the things that's difficult about this type of series is you have to cover multiple chapters at a time. But I thought it'd be helpful to run through what has happened up to this point so we can actually get sort of the gravity of what God is asking Abraham to do. So remember in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and he says, you know, come and I will go to a land that I will show you and I will bless you and all the families in earth will be blessed through you. And Abraham goes, that's awesome. But even before chapter 12 is over, Abraham has this run-in with the Pharaoh in Egypt, and he lies about Sarah being his sister and not his wife because he's afraid. And so, Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. And so, suddenly, the promised son, the the seed that eventually from which the Messiah will come from, is in jeopardy. Right? As soon as the call is done, Pharaoh takes Sarah. What's going to happen? Well, we know what happens, that God delivers uh, Abraham from Pharaoh just as he delivered Egypt from Pharaoh. But what happens next? Chapter 13, uh, Abraham has conflict with Lot because they have so much livestock and they both can't fit in the promised land, at least not in the same place. And Abraham says, Lot, take whatever part of the promised land that you want. And he looks down at the valley of the Jordan and says it was well watered like Eden. Now, we know it was the place also where Sodom and Gomorrah is, and that's not going to turn out too well for Mr. Lot. That comes a few chapters later. So, in chapter 14, Lot is kidnapped uh, by these kings that are attacking Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 15, uh, God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he basically, he reiterates, I'm going to give you the land. Your descendants are going to be greater than the stars and the sky. And Abraham says, how can I know this, right? And so God says, well, let me show you. And he cuts this covenant where they cut the animals in half and only God walks through. In other words, God basically says to Abraham, I am going to be the one who makes sure that both sides of this covenant, of this deal, are fulfilled And if you're Abraham, you say, awesome, right? And so he says, and a son, Abraham, is going to come from your own body. That's Genesis 15. And as soon as God says that, Genesis chapter 16, Sarah doesn't believe anymore. Or at least she has a a momentary lapse in faith. And so she says, well, if it's going to come from Abraham's body, maybe it's not mine. And so she gives Abraham her handmaiden, Sarah, and says, here, father, a child through Hagar. Hagar. And so she does, he does father a child through Hagar, who becomes Ishmael. And what's interesting, as soon as that happens, and Hagar sort of despises Sarah, Hagar, uh, Sarah blames it on Abraham, right? Let me read that to you. It says this in uh, Genesis 16, 15, basically. Hmm, let me find it here. It says, and Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me that, that Hagar has done be upon you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. So, what did Abraham do wrong there? I don't know. Either way, Sarah is not happy. Chapter 16. By the time we get to chapter 17, God comes again. Now, mind you, every time God shows up to Abraham, it's like decades It's not like you and I can like, oh, I need a word from the Lord. I'll just read my Bible. Abraham is is waiting around to hear from God. And so God comes again and gives Abraham this covenant of circumcision. He says every male child, every male in your household, every servant in your household will have this covenant of circumcision forever. And it will be a mark of the God's covenant that he made with Abraham in chapter 15. And also in chapter 17, the birth of Isaac is announced. And if you remember, that goes into chapter 18 and Sarah laughs and the angels confront her and say, why are you laughing? And she's like, I didn't laugh. And they're like, yeah, right. Either way, it's going to happen a year from now. We'll be back. And in that same thing, basically, if you remember, that's when they say, oh, and by the way, we're going to rain fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham intercedes for Lot. And he says, you know, What if there were 50 righteous people, or 45 righteous people, or 10 righteous people? And the angels say, no, 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 no. Abraham, again, they go in and rescue Lot. Every time Abraham goes in to rescue Lot, that actually is putting himself in jeopardy. It's putting the promise in jeopardy. All of these things are in jeopardy now. Nonetheless, the rescue is successful. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Lot has that little, uh, how we say, indiscretion with both of his daughters, and that ends up plaguing Israel forever. Then in chapter 20, you think, okay, now what's, what, what else could happen here? And Abraham bumps into this guy, king named Abimelech, and Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem as well, because Abraham becomes afraid after everything that's happened. Abraham becomes afraid. Abimelech takes Sarah, and we think, oh, there goes the promise again. Now, for sure, it's not going to happen. And God comes to Abimelech in a dream and says, da, 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 you shouldn't be doing that. Abimelech gets upset at Abraham, and he says, what are you trying to do to me? He says, God came and said that she's actually your wife, not your sister. And so they leave. Abraham leaves more blessed than he was to begin with. Then we get to chapter 21. Finally, Isaac is born. Isaac is born. Hagar and Ishmael move out of the house. Remember, Hagar and Ishmael were sort of a threat, at least in Sarah's mind. And Abraham cuts a treaty with this guy Abimelech. So by the time you end chapter 21, what you have is you have the land. Abraham is in the land that was promised, and it is peaceful. And the child of promise is now born. What could go wrong? That's where our text picks up today. Imagine Abraham finally saying, Wow, I'm 99 years old, and finally God has fulfilled all of his promises. All I have to do now is put my feet up, sit in a rocking chair, and not worry about much of anything until I just die and he can take on the family business. And then we have, it says, chapter 22, Verse 1, after these things, after all these things, where it looks like God has finally delivered the the promised land and the promised uh, Messiah seed, if you will, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, (laughs) and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Skirt, <laughs> Right? <laughs> Come on, man. That like, That is just crazy, right? So uh, things are supposed to be fine. Things are supposed to be peaceful. Things are supposed to be copacetic. Everything is the way it's supposed to be. And now God is telling me to take my son, my only son, the son whom I love, to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering. Um, that, that had to raise huge questions for Abraham. I mean, it raised huge questions for me, right? I think it should raise huge questions for anybody. right? Number one, is God capricious? Is he just toying with Abraham like sort of the Greek gods used to toy with people? So he sort of strung him along for all of these years and Abraham gets to the very end and God's like, oh, one more thing. Is is God just playing with him here? Or is this command, the command seems inconsistent with the promise, right? The promise was that you will have an heir and through the heir will come Messiah ultimately. That your redemption is going to come through that Heir, and so, how can Isaac fulfill his destiny if he's dead? Think about it. And for, for Abraham, it becomes a double whammy. Because on one hand, um, if, he, if he obeys, he loses his son, but he also loses his promise of a Redeemer, ultimately. So, what is he to do? Well, the tension that Abraham feels, remember, Israel was originally reading this, and then we read it now, and and the author wants them to feel something, and I think the tension that Abraham feels right then, Israel was also feeling, even as they read this text to begin with. Because remember what happened with them, that God had delivered them from Egypt, and He delivered them with great and mighty and powerful acts, and everything was finished, and they thought, whew, We are glad to be out of there. And God said, Well, no, you've got to leave Egypt and you have to enter the promised land. And when they looked into the promised land, remember the spies went in and they said, They're giants there. The people are hostile. They want to kill us. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. And 10 out of the 12 spies that came back said, We shouldn't go in. And none of them did ever enter in because they didn't have faith in God's promise. God promised. Israel that even though it looks hostile even though there are giants there that could squash you like a bug you got to trust me do you believe that even in the face of what seems to be the impossible that i am going to actually do what i said and the first generation of israelites didn't except for joshua and Caleb and they didn't enter the land because of that in the same you you get the same vibe if you will in the new testament right the new testament isn't like um, well, just trust Jesus and all your problems will be over and you don't have to worry about anything. The New Testament, even for those, maybe especially for those who trust Jesus, is loaded with tension. What do I mean? These are just some of the things Jesus says in the New Testament. Right? Remember Jesus said whoever wants to save his life must do what? He must lose it. Well, that's backwards from what the world would teach. And the the world would say, whoever wants to save his life must do everything possible because you are number one and your family after you. Nothing is more important than family. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, lose your life. He says, you want to become great, become nothing. That's not what the world says. What the world says, if you want to become great, then work hard, you know, you know bust your hump and, and get all that you can. Jesus says, do you want to become great in the kingdom of God? Go to the bottom, become nothing. Do you want to become first in the kingdom of God? Guess where you have to go? End of the line, right? Because in the kingdom of God, the first must be last and the last become first. And who you want to be the master, you want to be in charge of everything. Jesus says, well, that's great. If you want to be the master of all, then you must be the servant of all. Now all of those things, whether like it, it comes down to losing your life or becoming nothing or becoming last or becoming a servant, all of those things require faith to give to, that that believing God's promise is going to be better than losing this thing that actually looks good to me. Just like with Abraham, in many ways, and Jesus was the incarnation of all this stuff, right? I mean, he went to the cross uh, in spite of his apprehension. We tend to forget. I think, that Jesus was a little bit apprehensive about the cross, like when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, (laughs) Father, if there's any way that this cup might pass from me. And he said, yet not my will, but your will. In other words, Jesus went to the cross, trusting God's promise to bring about redemption and shalom in spite of what it looked like on the face of it. Right On the face of it, it just looked like the jig was up. And Messiah, who had come to save everybody, was just going to die. But there was something else at play here. You see, this is the nature of Abraham's test, is that the the test is, will he obey when he has nothing to rely on but God's promise? Right? God didn't give any, any assurances here, necessarily. He just says, go and do what I tell you. And Abraham, now what is he going to do? Well, Abraham is going to exercise faith. That's that. What other option does he have? It's either exercise faith or throw in the towel. And a lot for a lot of us, a lot of us are miserable because we try to live right on that sort of that razor edge between actually exercising faith and seeing what God will do and throwing in the towel and just quitting. And we hope if we just sit on the razor's edge long enough that sort of our problems and the struggles and the tensions in our life will go away. Guess what? They're probably not. So what is, what is evidence of faith? Notice what happens here. Verse 3. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now this whole story, by the way, is told very sort of almost like in slow motion that the author wants to build up this tension, right? Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. You see, the evidence of faith in the Bible is always obedience. In other words, God doesn't save us because of our obedience, but our obedience is evidence of the fact we have had faith in his salvation. So if you have no obedience, you have to ask yourself, do I have any faith? We would have never known if Abraham had faith unless he had been obedient. All the way back to chapter 12, but actually even right here. We know that we see evidence of Abraham's faith here at least in four different ways. Um, first, that that he rises and goes, right? That's number one. So he is obedient to the call of God. The second thing, if you look at verses 4 through 6, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. So what is Abraham's evidence of faith here, besides being obedient to what God has told him as far as sacrificing Isaac? He actually tells the servants, he says, you wait here, we're going to go over there, we're going to worship, and then we, he doesn't say I, he says we are going to come back. So Abraham has some sort of sense of faith that this is going to work out, either that or he's just lying. A lot of commentators say, oh, Abraham is just lying right here because he doesn't want the the servants to think he's a crazy, maniacal person. He doesn't want Isaac to get upset. We'll see that's not the case, I don't think. Abraham, I think, actually believes that he is going to come back with his son alive. And that leads us to to the third evidence of faith here. And this evidence of faith is actually Isaac's faith. In verse 8, verse 7, it says and Isaac said to his father Abraham my father <laughs> and he said here i am my son he said behold the fire in the wood but where is the lamb for burnt offering and Abraham said god will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering my son so they both they went both of them together in verse 9 when they had come to the place of which god had told him Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to and bound his Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So why am I saying this is about Isaac's faith? Well, for one, Isaac I think is starting to get a little like, I don't know if he's getting nervous, or you're starting to wonder, because he's got all the equipment and he doesn't say, um, hey father, where are the ropes? He says, Father, I've, I've got all the stuff here, but where is the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And at some point in the journey, Abraham must have told Isaac what was happening he that Isaac you you are the lamb reminds me you know of a I've been watching Pink Panther on uh, Amazon Prime and the ant and the aardvark and the, the arvark talks right and the ant and the ant says hey he, you know the the arvark says to the ant hey ant we're gonna have lunch and the ant says oh yeah what's that and he says you're it right imagine Abraham having to tell his son when he says where is the lamb and Abraham saying you're it well, we know from the chronology that, that Isaac here is at least 13. he might be as old as 30. And so there's no way a 99-year-old guy just subdued this like Buck's, you know young Buck, who's somewhere between 13 and 30. Isaac had to have laid himself down. He had to have just let said, "Yes, Father, I will obey." So Isaac had faith as well. And then the last evidence of faith is, is him raising the knife, right? in verse 10. It says, "Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife. To slaughter his son, and we get no sense from the language of that. That word "slaughter" is the word "sacrifice" that they use in the temple. We there's no sense in which Abraham is fooling around here. He isn't saying that Abraham sort of like raised the knife sort of slowly and he's waiting and he's counting like one, one thousand, two, one thousand. Okay, when I get to a million, that's when I'll do it. He was getting ready to do it. So we see that faith in four ways: is one that he rose; two, that he tells his servants to be back. Isaac submitted himself, and then finally Abraham was going through with the actual sacrifice. Now, how does Abraham pull that off in his heart? Because I don't know if I could have done it. Could you? How does he do it? And I think, is it just blind obedience, or, or that God's going to work things out one way or the other? And I think the answer is no. I, in fact, I, I know the answer is no. Abraham didn't just believe in the promise of God, he believed in the power of God. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The New Testament helps us understand what was going through Abraham's mind as this event was was taking place. And Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 says this, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then in verse 19, he considered, that's Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. How did Abraham have the faith to sacrifice his only son? Was it just blind faith that God was going to work things out? No. I mean, there might might have been some of that, But the reality was that Abraham, even all the way back in the Old Testament, believed that God was able to raise the dead. That when he tells the the servants, we will be back, in Abraham's mind, I presume, is that even if this sacrifice goes through, God will raise my son from the dead. Abraham not only believed in the promises of God, but Abraham believed in the power of God. And he believed in the power of God to raise the dead. You see, you and I face all of these kinds of problems, and on one hand, it's easy to think, well, God promised that things are going to work out well in the end. That's You need to believe that. On the other hand, you believe that He has the power to actually deliver you, to save you, to work things out on your behalf. Or the Heidelberg Catechism says, He is able to do these things because He's an almighty God, but He is willing to do these things because He is a faithful Father. Now let's consider our last point, the reward of faith. I love how the angel of the Lord intervenes here. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is basically a physical manifestation of God himself. And so the angel of the Lord, it's like you could just imagine that they're sitting there like Abraham's getting ready to do it and they're like, by Jove, he's going to actually do this. (laughs) And so it says in verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. (laughs) And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now notice what God is not saying here and what he didn't say to Abraham is, Abraham, now that you've done the right thing, now you're acceptable in my sight. Absolutely not. Remember, all the way back in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God's promises, and it said that he believed, and God credited that to him as righteousness. So if God's not saying, now you're acceptable because you did the right thing, what is he saying? And I think more he's saying, now I know you get it. Abraham, now I know that you're willing to trust regardless of how hopeless things seem. Now I know you're willing to trust my promises, but you're also willing to trust God my power and because of that you get it and and later in the chapter god reiterates the promises and he reiterates his own willingness to make sure that they are fulfilled on his own death he swears and it doesn't get better than that and you see abraham gained a greater understanding of god's plan through the whisper of substitution Right, this this when when you hear it says that God Abraham went and offered and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, that the ram was the substitute for his son. The other whisper that we hear in this story of the gospel is this whisper of resurrection, that Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead. Let me finish with um, how the Jesus Storybook finishes this story. And, you know, one of the great things about this is we're preaching from the regular Bible, but but there's a sense in which this, the Jesus Storybook Bible, has a great summary of what we were supposed to have learned. And so let me read you the conclusion to the story in, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so the the context, they have Abraham and Isaac sort of sitting by a fire, sort of looking at the sky. And it says, and as they sat there on the mountaintop, Watching the embers of the fire die in the cool night air, the stars above them sparkling in the velvet sky, God helped Abraham and Isaac understand something. God wanted his people to live and not die. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. Like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. Remember the story I told you at the beginning about my table saw and losing it and telling Judy sort of flippantly, frankly. I think God wants me to have a table saw. I said with tears in my eyes. About two days later, we were at a friend's house and the friend is moving away and they packed up their house and there was a small get-together and he said, hey, can you come to the garage with me? And I said, sure. We walked out there and he said, you know, everything we have, we packed up and this one thing wouldn't fit anywhere and my father gave it to me years ago and he opened the garage door and it was like, If you would have been there, what you would have seen was this gnarly, rusty, 50-year-old craftsman table saw. But what I saw was a future Binford 9000, right? He said, I don't know if you want this. And I said, yes. Immediately, I said, yes, I want it. And all I could think of was that this thing is going to be the most awesome saw in the whole world. God provided a table saw. And you know what I think I'm going to name it? Isaac. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I pray now that um, you would actually give us faith like Abraham had faith, that as we face the trials and tribulations and struggles in our life, that you would actually um, give us faith to be obedient, but also faith to believe, not just in your promises, but also in your power, that you are not only willing, but you are able to care for us and able to get us through any situation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So I thought it was appropriate this morning as we conclude. Um, typically, during this time after we preach the sermon, we would do uh, the, an offertory and we would take an offering. And so I would invite you, you know, if you would like to give to the ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church, this is a time, you know, I'm sure the information is there in the discussion section or link. You can click through and uh, support the ministry. We would love that and appreciate that a great deal. And so then we would move on to a profession of faith before we did um, the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to close this morning with this profession of faith from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism question 21 asks this, What is true faith? Answer: True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted, not only to others but also to me, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. Let me send you from this time with these words, saying, The Lord your God is with you. The Lord your God is a mighty and victorious warrior. The Lord your God will quiet you with his love. And the Lord your God shouts over you with great shouts of joy. Go in the knowledge of this peace. Amen and amen. Have a great week.